All right, I started recording already so we can get those great cold open moments. <laughs> Perfect. Just in case one of us says something inspired, witty, and brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. I've had two cups of coffee, so. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. That's true. Hello, and welcome to Yesterday in Travel. My name is Kalina, and I'm joined, as always, by Brian. Hi, Brian. Hey, Kalina. Today, we're going to discuss the great migration of Puerto Ricans to New York City in the 1950s. We'll talk about the history of Puerto Rico, what led to this mass movement north, and how the influx of Puerto Ricans to New York has impacted the city, and how it impacted the island. First, as we do every episode, we'll discuss what's new in travel. Brian? Yeah, so there's not a lot new. I feel like we say this most weeks. Certainly, there's not a lot to report in terms of how many people are traveling or the general state of travel. It seems like those have pretty much remained constant. But one article that I flagged that I thought was maybe a little bit hopeful is a story about an experiment they're doing in Finland uh, with some sniffing dogs in airports. And they've trained these dogs to sniff out coronavirus on people. In tests, they claim that there's almost a 100% accuracy rate. So they have these dogs sniff someone or they, they take a swab of a person's skin and they put it next to a bunch of other scents and they have the dog sniff them. And if the dog, you know, makes the right noise or movement to show that they that they smell something, then they'll test the person with an actual <laughs> rapid test for COVID. And they've been, they said, almost 100% accurate. But, you know, I mean, if it's close to 100% accurate, it's extremely inexpensive compared to the prospect of swabbing every single person going through an airport. So if this actually works and it's something that could be implemented in, you know, sports stadiums, airports, places where you've got masses of people, high traffic areas going back and forth, and you can just have a bunch of mm -hmm. cute dogs running around, like tagging people for coronavirus, <laughs> like it's it's going to be massively less expensive and and if it's effective then great hey thank you it's to have them at the white house dogs at the white house and all the debates that that would be i don't know if trump would sign off on that but i think that would be <laughs> ideal i don't think he likes dogs so probably not you just have a dog barking at him like the whole debate like <laughs> that'd be funny um but yeah so that that seemed like a little piece of of good news potentially on the horizon. Otherwise, it seems like the, you know, the airline industry is just kind of a mess. There are lots of cheap flight deals floating around. Um, there's articles out there promoting flights to Japan for $170 and um, airlines are opening up new routes to more domestic locations in the southern part of the United States in Florida, Texas, Arizona. Um, flights between like LA and Palm Springs have become more popular and flights to Cancun. Airlines that don't normally run flights to Cancun are starting to open up routes to Cancun. But ultimately, it just seems like even within these articles promoting these flights, there's no clear verdict as to whether flying is safe yet. And until that gets sorted out, it's it's a little bit of a moot point. Like there may be these cheap flights all over the place and maybe some people will take a risk 
of you know purchasing a flight and maybe there's a cancellation policy that's in your favor if you want to change it but these are all kind of small measures that don't really feel like they're solving the bigger problem which is that there's all this confusion around what's safe to do and what's not safe to do and how to how to travel safely and right now like even with whatever mitigation that is being attempted with these flights the airline industry is losing five billion dollars a month Mm. which is just not sustainable i mean it's an understatement it's completely ridiculous yeah so bad that's all i've got what do you what did you see out there (laughs) well um more travel news something i read this morning was that the first a flight between Australia and New Zealand, they've set up like a travel corridor and the first flight was October 16th. And yeah, it's funny because New Zealanders going to Australia do not have to quarantine. Australians going to New Zealand do have to quarantine for 14 days. Mm. But yeah, because New Zealand's cases are are lower. Um, Mm -hmm. But that seems hopeful. I mean, it's an experiment still, but it kind of ties back to like what we were talking about with London and New York and this possibility that maybe countries and cities can set up these corridors. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a format that could potentially expand to lots of different places. And it still might be complicated, but at least within those these like corridors, it'll make it easier for people to go on trips potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Especially now with like rapid testing becoming more of a thing maybe, and maybe the, the dogs, like who knows, hopeful stuff. Um, the other two pieces of travel news I found that were kind of, I mean, it's nothing to do with the travel industry itself, but... One's about a woman who took an artifact from Pompeii in 2005, and she recently returned it because she told the, I don't know, someone in Pompeii that she had been like cursed with bad luck for the last 15 years. And actually, this happens all the time. The, the They say they have, they have hundreds of people who have taken things and then returned them and said that they had bad luck after stealing from Pompeii. So don't steal from Pompeii. Yeah, it's the lesson. And then kind of a nice moment in like travel news is this this Japanese guy who went to Peru in March because he wanted to go to Machu Picchu and like couldn't because it shut down. And he just, he's just living in Peru for the last couple of months, um, but starting to run out of money and thinking about going home. And so Peru decided to let him go visit Machu Picchu like by himself. I think there were two photographers with him, but he just wandered the site and took it all in, which was like, it's nice. It's good for Peru. It's a sweet thing. Yeah. A nice silver lining for him, (laughs) but I wonder if it was worth it to like be stranded in Peru for months, but then get to go see Machu Picchu by yourself, yeah. which is literally like unprecedented. Machu Picchu is one of those places, I think, where you there's it's, there's actually no chance you get to go there and there won't be like mm-hmm. lots of other people also ruining yeah. the view, you know? So, hey. That's been a problem in the last couple of years is like too many people going and Peru trying to like control the crowds. Yeah. So maybe COVID-19 is all a Peruvian uh conspiracy uh-huh. maybe so that's cool though about pompeii though that's that, i like an old school curse story you know yeah i grew up reading a lot of like tintin books and, oh yeah and in the tintin stories inevitably there's you know some art of, there's there's the same sort of thing you know uh, an artifact gets taken from an egyptian yeah. tomb or yeah somewhere down in south america sure enough like now you got ghosts haunting you right yeah i just love that it's not just this one woman that's like hundreds of other people Mm -hmm. too it's so nuts but i bet there's like a internet effect like like let's say Mm -hmm. you steal something from pompeii you go back home you're googling around it's late you've had a little too much to drink you stumble (laughs) upon some articles you go down some rabbit holes about like 
this phenomenon and next thing you know you're convinced that you're also being cursed by it you know maybe maybe or maybe you're like wow it all makes sense now this is what my bad luck has come from right cool yes uh okay so let's get into the great migration what uh what was the great migration first off so basically in the 1950s this is the post world war ii years and the economy is booming there are also labor shortages and the, these two factors um, result in this mass migration of Puerto Ricans north, specifically to New York City. Um, between 1946 and 1950, there's about 30,000 Puerto Ricans per year going to New York. In 1950, following the Korean War, which creates even more labor shortages, it's up to 50,000. But another factor here which helped um, make it possible for Puerto Ricans to go in such large numbers was airline tickets were really cheap. And that's something that you found out about this agreement between Puerto Rico and the United States. Yeah, we were sort of confused. I think we kept seeing um, this reference to the idea that one of the factors for this huge migration of people coming from Puerto Rico up to, to New York City was that there were cheap airfares. And this sort of didn't jibe with our, with the understanding I had of the way airfares, um, you know, the way airfares were set by the CAB at the time. We had discussed this in our first episode on the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. So prior to 1978, the idea was airfares were were really high, and that made it difficult for people who weren't in the upper classes to actually travel. So I looked into it a little bit, and it, it turns out there was, yeah, there was a lot going on in Puerto Rico by the Puerto Rican government to facilitate this migration and to try to lower these airfares artificially. So after World War II, there was this surplus of airplanes just from the war. There there was all this extra machinery that kind of got distributed all over and lots of airline charter companies popped up. And Puerto Rico, since it was kind of its own, I mean, it was part of Spain and then, you know, it was this sort of territory. Um, they didn't really have a developed governmental airline system. So they had a lot of charter flights um, and charter flights were a little bit less expensive than like commercial airline flights, but they had really bad safety records. And the Puerto Rican government was really concerned about this because there was a policy in Puerto Rico to try to move people off of the island because there had there was a rapidly expanding population on the island so it was it was part of their plan to to deal with overpopulation was like you know the united states needs labor and we have a surplus of labor and we have a growing population that we can't sustain <clears throat> so let's facilitate this movement off the island and so the governor luis munoz marine issued these repeated complaints to the CAB arguing that Puerto Rico was disadvantaged because it wasn't like the other states of the union that could, where people could just drive across borders and Puerto Ricans in order to have movement in order to be economic players in the greater United States, that airfare was a key component to that. And so they asked the airlines for more, flights from the the larger airline companies. Uh, They wanted more regulations around the safety systems for the charter flights. And they had a series of really bad air crashes and and air accidents in in, in 1947 and 48 that made it really scary for a lot of Puerto Ricans to fly. They were really worried about it because there was a series of crashes and and most of them were between New York and and San Juan. So lots of Puerto Ricans were dying on these flights. And so eventually 
the CAB, they rejected, they kept rejecting these pleas um, by the Puerto Rican government. And eventually they agreed to approve more, uh, Eastern Air in addition to Pan Am, which was the big airline flying between Puerto Rico. And so created more competition and that reduced prices. And then ultimately they also lobbied for further artificially reducing prices, which made it possible for middle-class and working-class people in Puerto Rico who didn't have a lot of money, but were interested in moving to the States for reasons of employment to actually purchase a ticket, feel like it was safe and actually fly up to the mainland United States. So yeah, you know, as you said, that created this boom in New York City. They were just, you know, every year, it was like a new small town of Puerto Ricans moving from Puerto Rico to, to the mainland. So anyway, by, by the 50s, it was, it was really easy to get to New York City, but it hadn't always been that way. So I guess we wanted to kind of look back and look at the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States and sort of how that developed. So do you want to get into a little bit of the, the backstory around the history of the relationship between Puerto Rico and the U.S.? Yeah, we'll do a quick Puerto Rico-U.S. history lesson. Um, basically, in 1898, there's a Spanish-American war and Puerto Rico is ceded to the United States by Spain. Um, but its people are not made citizens. There's all this racial politics at the time, and the president, William McKinley, sees Puerto Rico as a place to be civilized, not as a place full of people of potential American citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, six years later, there's this Supreme Court case where this woman goes to Ellis Island, this Puerto Rican woman, and she's turned away as an undesirable alien. And she says, I'm not an alien. Annexation of Puerto Rico made me an American, and thus I'm a citizen. So the Supreme Court decides she's not an alien, but they don't say she's a citizen either. So this like gray area still exists. Hmm. And this isn't really cleared up until 1917 when uh, Woodrow Wilson signs the Jones-Shafroth Act, which makes Puerto Rico U.S. territory. Puerto Ricans are granted statutory citizenship, which means it's given to them by Congress, not the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And it also changes the official language of the island to English. So that was like a big moment for like mm-hmm. Puerto Rican American relations. This is right in time for World War One. Convenient. And yes, Puerto Ricans were eligible for the draft. Very convenient. So he signs the act in March 1917. The U.S. enters the war in April 1917. It is important to note that initially Puerto Ricans were as a territory, they were not eligible for the draft. And actually, Puerto Rican politicians asked to be eligible, trying to prove like patriotism and like loyalty to the mainland. So about 20,000 men are drafted and most are sent to guard the Panama Canal, which was completed in 1914. But some are sent to the Western Front. And interestingly, and sort of sadly, the armed forces at the time were segregated. And so Puerto Ricans were sent to serve with black soldiers and they were most of them were in the 369th regiment which was called the Harlem Hellfighters. Nice. And their regiment fought the longest of any regiment, any American regiment in the war, 191 days. And they're credited with bringing jazz to France. So that's cool. Nice. Um yeah. So basically becoming becoming citizens and fighting in the war draws Puerto Ricans closer to the US and between 1910 and 1920 the population of Puerto Ricans in New York increases by over 1000%. There's like this back and forth now. So let's talk now about how this inclusion of Puerto Ricans in New York has changed or did change the city's culture. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans are, are drawn into the war and and they're moving into New York City at this 
increasing rate. And they're moving all over the United States, really. There's there's lots of farm jobs in the Midwest and the West that are being taken by Puerto Ricans. But in the city, it's, you know, it's lots of neighborhoods, Williamsburg, Bushwick, South Bronx, Spanish Harlem, and in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, all these neighborhoods get a huge influx of Puerto Ricans. And East Harlem is probably the, the most well-known. It became known as Spanish Harlem, or it also got the moniker El Barrio, which means the neighborhood in Spanish, um, and hence the museum on East 105th Street, uh, which is a, a museum about Puerto Rican art and history in the city. But East Harlem had previously actually been like an Italian neighborhood. It was called Italian Harlem. And actually the mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, uh, was actually like a representative from that <laughs> area when it was Italian. But uh, East Harlem changed dramatically. Um, it became Spanish Harlem. And these areas had had been a mixture of all different types of immigrants who had come in over, over the previous decades. And it was uh, a mixture of Jewish immigrants, Italians, African-Americans, Irish, and then now Puerto Ricans. And so there was a tension with this huge influx. Um, there was a lot of discrimination against Puerto Ricans, partly because of their language, partly because of oftentimes they were seen as racially distinct from the white Europeans who, who were sort of already assimilating in this sort of melting pot. And it was not uncommon to actually find signs on stores that said no dogs or Puerto Ricans allowed. So pretty intense discrimination going on during this period. And because a lot of the people coming up from the island weren't highly skilled, quote unquote, they were competing for service sector jobs and, and jobs that these other immigrant groups in the city were competing for. So there were various waves of riots between different groups in, in these neighborhoods. But the city, you know, with this massive influx, the city definitely did change and adopted some of these Puerto Rican flourishes. And so, like, if you think of bodegas, bodegas are so ubiquitous in New York City. And, you know, we call corner stores are called bodegas and no one really thinks about it. But bodegas weren't a thing until Puerto Ricans started opening up little corner store shops and they would call them bodega Santurce or bodega something related to the town where they came from in Puerto Rico. So there were some some small entrepreneurs uh, who were opening up these shops. And then the bodega then became, you know, came to mean a corner store that sold a mixture of dry goods and like some fruits and vegetables. And this was something that had been brought over from these Puerto Rican transplants who were trying to sort of replicate the corner store shops um, on the island. It's like a very New York thing too, I think. Bodegas, like I know in, you know, where I'm from in Seattle, like, it's not really a thing at all. Not like it is in New York. Yeah, yeah. Bodega is a super New York thing. And I that word was always like vaguely Spanish sounding to me, but I didn't I didn't really think it through. But yeah. And also piraguas, which I don't know if this is more a little bit more sub-regional within neighborhoods in the city. But if you're certainly if you're in Bushwick or if you're in Spanish Harlem or South Bronx, there are these vendors, these guys that that walk around with these little ice vendors where they they do shave ice and they have a little umbrella and they they have a little bell usually yes and they stop and then they'll like sh mm -hmm. shave the ice down right in front of you put it into this little uh this little cup and then they they pour this like sugary stuff over it and that's called yeah, a, 
Sorry, go ahead. They're all over Prospect Park. Oh, really? These little carts. Oh, yeah. Nice, yeah, yeah. nice. As soon as you described it, I was like, oh, I've seen those all, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's called a piraguas and, and the guy or, or piragua and the guys that do it are called piragueros. And mm-hmm. and so so that's another thing that sort of became a part of the the greater landscape of the city. Um, but also during this time in the in the 50s and 60s, the influence of, of Puerto Ricans in the city entered into popular culture in an even bigger way in things like West Side Story, which was this take on Romeo and Juliet, but the writers of the musical adapted it to kind of fit with some of the social politics of the day. So, you know, when they were initially conceiving it, they actually, they had the main protagonists. One was an Irish Catholic and one was Jewish, but then they ended up switching it to to be a, a Irish Polish guy and a Puerto Rican woman, and that that became West Side Story, hugely popular musical. Of course, problematic in mm. that all the actors in the original productions of the Broadway show, as well as the movie that that came out in the early '60s, were white people, except for Rita Moreno, the one Puerto Rican actress who she won. I believe she won an Oscar for it. But in interviews with her, actually. She even said they made her wear brown face. All the actors were in brown face. And since she she was Puerto Rican, but her skin tone didn't match the fake brown face skin tone of the white actors in the in the production, they made her wear brown face over her normal natural skin color to match with everyone. So, you know, weird problematic stuff all over the place. But anyway, that musical really like encapsulates what was going on at the time in New York City with the tensions between longstanding European immigrants who had come to the city and felt like it was theirs and the, the influx of Puerto Ricans who were, um, who were coming to the city. Despite the problems with the film, too, like I've read somewhere researching this episode that like it was the first time some people had like heard as Puerto Ricans heard Puerto Ricans like represented on film, like on screen. So that was still, even if there were all these problems with it and it was mostly a white cast, like it was still bringing some like attention to that this existed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think like at the time, even though we look at it today and we see all of this problematic stuff, I think at the time it was super progressive to have a Broadway musical that centered around Mm. non-white characters, you know, um, as much as they were caricatured. Um, And also, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans were becoming more and more represented in the city as a whole. Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican Day Parade started in the 50s. There was a sort of Puerto Rican pride movement called the New Yorican movement around poetry and literature and art and music uh, that started up in, in the 50s. And you can't talk about Puerto Ricans in New York City without, without talking about salsa. Salsa was a huge phenomenon uh, that was started in the city by Puerto Rican and immigrants from from other Caribbean and Latin American countries um, and salsa became a huge global phenomenon that is still, you know, one of the most popular musical genres in all of Latin America. So, yeah, I mean, the city really, really did change. Um, and and you can still see a lot of a lot of those changes that took place during this period of the Great Migration when, you know, mm. population of Puerto Ricans in the city grew tenfold between like the mid forties to the mid sixties. Mm, yeah, definitely with bod- bodegas and um, I'm not going to try to pronounce the pira. Piraguas. Piraguas. Yeah. 
Okay. So how about Puerto Rico? How have travel trends like the Great Migration impacted the island itself? The impacts on the island of all of this out-migration are a little bit more diffuse. Mm. I mean, for sure, one of the results of, of the migration is that there are now more Puerto Ricans outside of Puerto Rico or more people with Puerto Rican descent outside of Puerto Rico in the United States than there are on the island itself. They did a recent estimate uh, a couple of years ago, and there, there are about 5.8 million Puerto Ricans in the mainland, uh, in the mainland United States, and about 3 million Puerto Ricans on the island of Puerto Rico. So in that sense, there has been just this massive out-migration over the years, which means that, you know, if you're actually a Puerto Rican living in Puerto Rico, you're in the minority of Puerto Ricans in the greater United States. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was curious about was whether all of this out-migration resulted in a brain drain or in lots of remittances, sort of payments being sent back to family members in Puerto Rico. And there have been some studies that show that there there hasn't really been a brain drain. The people exiting Puerto Rico for the states were not necessarily over-indexed in terms of their education or their skills. Um, and there also haven't, there hasn't been a huge phenomenon of remittances being sent back to the island in the same way that Dominican and Cuban immigrants to the United States and, and Mexican immigrants in the United States send a lot of money back to their family in their home countries. Since Puerto Rico is part of the United States, Puerto Ricans receive the same social safety net benefits that um, mainland Americans do. So um, in that sense, there's an idea that that helps people who may not have as much money. And so there's less of a need for family and relatives and friends to be to be sending um, money back. But I think ultimately the effect on the island has just been to kind of further entangle Puerto Rican and American lives in sort of the same basket. And and any sort of changes that happened on happen on the island and happened in, in the Puerto Rican community in the, on the mainland affect each other um, significantly. So when there is a hurricane on the island, you know, there's huge support from the mainland among Puerto Ricans and among non-Puerto Ricans, just because Puerto Rican culture has, has become such an integral part of American culture. And also maybe, you know, you could think of the, the issue of becoming a state versus independence is, is very wrapped up in the interconnectedness between the two countries. And, and I think part of the difficulty of deciding where that would land um, has to do with the fact that there are so many Puerto Ricans that divide time between Puerto Rico and the states or have family on one side or the other. Yeah, definitely. I feel like tangle is kind of a good word because there's so much, despite like laws have been passed, you know, not like the Jones Act was passed like 100 years ago. It's still a lot of like uncertainty and um, things haven't been entirely resolved between Puerto Rico and the U.S. I think one of the main points of contention is that Puerto Ricans on the island can't vote for president. Although if you move to the mainland as a Puerto Rican, you can. You just, you know, register to vote like any other American. I think, I mean, right now in this election, there has been a push for Puerto Rican and like DC statehood, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like bringing these two in. And I've heard all sorts of like schemes about this where like they would make the two Dakotas like one state mm -hmm. and like something else to try to like keep it at 50, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's always been this, yeah, this idea of, of Puerto Rico as a state versus an independent country. Do you want to get into some of the ins and outs of the independence question? Yeah, um, it always has been a, a sort of a, a question exactly whether to be a state to join the United States or to be independent. 
And in the 1950s, especially, this was like an issue. And two Puerto Ricans who were before independence actually tried to assassinate Harry Truman to bring attention to the cause. He was the White House was under like construction or renovations. So he was living in the Blair House, which is nearby. And two men came and like tried to like shoot their way in and and kill him. But that didn't succeed. It's interesting that that was in 1950 because in 1946, the U.S. and the Philippines reached an agreement for the Philippines to become independent on July 4th, which I find to be a funny, funny thing. But since then, they've had referendums on whether... To, Great branding. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. July 4th. Uh, various votes since then have not really shown a lot of support for independence. In 2012 and 2017, there were referendums and most voters choose statehood by a huge margin less than 10%, less than 5% in some cases choose independence. So that seems to be the preference, but it's all very, very muddled still. Yeah. And I guess these votes, like they're non-binding. This is Puerto Ricans voting on these referendums. And then the United States government just sort of sits on them and is is like, okay, thanks for letting us know. You Don't call us. Mm-hmm. We'll call you when we're like, when we're ready to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I believe even Obama at one point was like, yeah, whatever you decide, Puerto Rico, like we're behind you. And then they were like, we want to be a state. He's like, yeah, maybe not right now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's finish up the episode by talking about how the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States has impacted travelers, specifically American travelers going to Puerto Rico. Yeah. This is a travel show. So uh, (laughs) yeah, let's talk about travel to Puerto Rico by non-Puerto Rican U.S. citizens. So, yeah, I guess on the flip side of of the Great Migration and the mm. Jones-Shafroth Act, this uh, bringing Puerto Rico into the Union meant that Puerto Ricans could obviously travel to the United States without a passport, but U.S. citizens from the mainland could also travel to Puerto Rico now without a passport. So tourism naturally started to increase. And actually, it was interesting b- because... In the 40s and 50s, right after the war, Cuba was still dominant in in terms of tourism infrastructure at that point in time. So Americans were still traveling to Cuba a lot. And Puerto Rico was kind of bypassed. There wasn't a lot of tourism development there and weren't a lot of people traveling there. But when the Cuban Revolution happened in 1959, suddenly... (laughs) These poor American tourists had nowhere to go. Um, So tourism in Puerto Rico really, really started to spike. There was a lot of investment and there were a lot of natural advantages also to going to Puerto Rico. I mean, Puerto Rico is in some ways similar to Cuba in that it's it's culturally different from the United States. It was a Spanish colony and Spanish is spoken there. But you didn't have to have a passport. You could use the U.S. dollar. And because of the connection with the United States, English was much more common. And now these days when you go to Puerto Rico, since it is a U.S. commonwealth, uh, just like anywhere in the States, your cell phone works. You don't have to switch up your roaming data plan or whatever. So there's all sorts of conveniences that make Puerto Rico a natural travel destination for Americans in the mainland. Um and that has benefited them greatly in terms of their their tourism in industry. And even in COVID times with, with unemployment, one thing 
that is interesting is that if you go on unemployment insurance, um, if you're collecting unemployment from the U.S. government, you're not allowed to travel internationally. But since Puerto Rico is part of the United States, you can still, you know, potentially use your unemployment earnings to go on a quick little vacation to Puerto Rico. So, yeah, I, I think during the past six months, whatever, during this this time of COVID, Puerto Rico has remained pretty popular in its tourists' interest in traveling there. Lots of people are still Googling, can I travel to Puerto Rico? And Puerto Rico is, a, is still a, a popular destination. And I think when it briefly opened up during a window in sometime in like the late spring, early summer, there was a ton of interest and there were lots of people that were doing whatever they could to, to fly down to Puerto Rico getting their COVID test and going out there. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely accessible. And there's lots of easy flights from the East Coast, especially to go to Puerto Rico. Easy and cheap flights. Yeah. All right. We don't have our little script. Oh, boy. Let's see. I'll say thanks for listening to our show. Check us out on <laughs> some social media that we have. Yeah. <laughs> Check us out on social media. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, post reviews on Apple podcasts. That really helps us out. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're, you know, if you've got a family like Kalina, that's like all into history, tell your family, get the whole family listening. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back. So watch your feeds for the next episode. Yeah, do we have, do we know what we're doing for our NASA? We haven't figured that out yet, but we're thinking Japan, no, right? Right, yeah, talking about something to do with Japan. Okay, cool. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Yesterday in Travel is sponsored by Via Hero, a platform that connects you to local travel experts who live where you're going. Their job is to provide expert advice and help arrange activities and logistics like lodging, guided tours, transportation, and restaurant reservations. They also share insider tips on hidden gems and activities that you might never find searching the web. When you hire a local, your money goes directly to them, and they help you plan a trip that is more fun, less expensive, and also directs your tourism dollars more evenly to the communities you visit, which helps to make your trip more sustainable. Plus, locals are the best way to help you navigate safely to avoid crowds and comply with rules so that you can have peace of mind and focus on enjoying your trip. Use the code YESTERDAY at checkout to get 10% off your next customized itinerary and guidebook created just for you by one of Via Hero's amazing locals in over 20 destinations across the world. Go to www.viahero.com to find more. That's www.viahero.com to start planning your next trip with the help of a local. And remember to use the code YESTERDAY at checkout, which gets you 10% off and lets them know we sent you.